Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to episode 31 of the LSQ podcast. I'm Jenny LSQ. As anyone who's had this experience can attest, if you spend time with someone where you're barfing and they're making you feel okay about it, you've formed a pretty strong bond. And the first evening that I ever spent quality time with Interpol's Paul Banks, it ended, yes, with me ralphing and him being so chill about it. It was an evening when earlier I had interviewed him for an article for Rolling Stone, and I promise I was on my best behavior during the business portion of the evening. But later that night, we were at Max Fish on the Lower East Side. I did some stuff I shouldn't have, and thus the famous Ralphing in front of Paul Banks of the year, whatever it was, 2004-ish? Anyhow, over the years, I've encountered Paul many times since then when I had a more professional demeanor, and always it was for fairly brief windows of time. So I've never before this been able to dig in on some of the childhood musical influences kind of stuff that I always love talking to people about. You'll get to hear uh, Paul talk about those things and about a childhood growing up around the world, really, um, coming up in this episode of LSQ. Plus, after the interview with Banks, you've got Hanks. That's actor, director, producer documentary filmmaker and massive music enthusiast Colin Hanks. More about that when we get to it. Where this interview with Paul begins, I was uh, catching up with him this spring. Actually, I want to say thanks to Nightbird Studios at the Sunset Marquee in Los Angeles for hosting us. Um, But yeah, when we were catching up, it was in between some tours for Interpol. And so yeah, where this conversation begins is with Paul updating me as to, you know, what he's been doing in recent weeks at that point in time. And at this point in time, Interpol are about to be on the road again doing dates this fall with Morrissey. I'm trying to think when we last left off. Um, we, we did a South American tour. So the last show was in Lima, Peru. And then I went to Panama, um, where I, you know, I stay. Uh, for a week there and then I was in New York for like six days um, to just check in because I knew after those six days of being in New York I'm not going to be back there until mid-July I'm just going to be gone on the right. road so some strategic dinners with people who's you know I always check in with yeah um, so you but you so you keep a place in New York but I guess maybe I, I didn't recall that you stay in Panama yeah, yeah. nowadays that's that's your base when you have time to be somewhere both both are I think I just didn't I didn't talk about Panama I think I kind of left it vaguer yeah and then I sort of realized that I <laughs> that's kind of silly <laughs> <laughs> to, be, to be cagey about what nation you spend time in um kind of like it but yeah so yeah so panama is uh especially when i'm on the road i think i do like yeah i like going there i surf and it's i, I like the uh if it's winter time in new york then i'm definitely going to be in panama at every possible opportunity wow. uh, i can't stand the winter 
Yeah, I mean, I'm here for that same reason in LA instead of New York, but yeah. more modest version of the of the snowbird thing. But when did you when did you sort of fall in love with Panama? Um, long time ago. My I have a very close friend who's from there, and kind of like family owns land, right? And so I wound up kind of getting some property from my friend's family. And did you that. feel immediately though, sort of like, ooh, I like this place? There's a yeah, this vibe appeals to me. Yeah, yeah. It's and like, you, you've lived in a bunch of, you know, it's interesting to me because you've lived in a bunch of places, and I know traveled around a lot as mm -hmm. a kid. So yeah, I wonder if Mexico, a place immediately, you know, if a place is your kind of place. Well, I've always loved the ocean. Um, and when I was in Mexico, I got into like when I was in Mexico for high school, I got into body surfing, and you need. I got into kind of like, yeah, body surfing on, in bigger conditions, and. Uh, I almost drowned. I had to get saved once when I was in high school oh, in Mexico. Oh, careful. Well, just undertow, you know, is a thing. But uh, that that really, like, awoke, like, this passion of, like, ocean sport, I guess. Like, I just used to – so I used to go visit my friend's beach and uh, and body surf there. And then I got a place and took up surfing. That seemed like that's the next step, you know, obviously, to, like, get more involved same with like I started playing music because I was so obsessed with music that I felt like I need to like somehow participate more in this. So I already had a love for the ocean and then like surfing seemed like that's the yeah the end all be all of interacting with waves. Yeah. I mean, so you're just when you're there, is it like crack of dawn, get up and like zip up and get out there kind of thing? No, ain't no zip up because the water's 82 degrees. Fuck. Yeah. Ain't no zipping up a wetsuit. Um and yeah, I mean, it depends, like, the way it works on, I mean, diff every beach is different, but, like, there's, it has to be relative to the tide when yeah. the surf is going to be good. Like, you can't surf low tide, for instance, like, one one in a million. So, you know, the tide changes every day yeah. by, like, 45 minutes. It's later. So if the waves are going to be good at 6 a.m., then, yeah, I actually do get up to go surf at 6 a.m., yeah, but that's not always the case. It's interesting to me that it's you're saying it was after you had a gnarly undertow could have killed me experience that you became more intrigued by it. Sort of. Yeah, yeah. I guess I kind of what, it, what it showed me. It? I think that actually was a great. It was a great thing to happen to almost drown and get rescued because you then you really learn the respect that you need to have for the ocean, mm. especially if you're swimming. If you're in the ocean on a surfboard, it's like having a car in the ocean. You know, like there ain't no better flotation device. So you don't have to worry about the undertow if you're on a surfboard. Right. You can just like fucking get around. But um, swimming in the ocean is definitely something that I feel like, yeah. So I don't think people realize how fast you can just get taken out. I mean, did you did you have to take a break from it? Where did you have the fear for a minute? Or? No, no, not yeah. at all, not yeah. at all. It just really became. I remember when I'd go visit the beach that I now surf at. I would go swimming a lot. I didn't realize that it was, you know, it's a kind of a bad idea to swim there. But I think because I'd almost drown. It's like, yeah, if you go in just to your waist, for instance, then you're okay. There's no chance of it pulling you out. But like, if you're up any deeper than that, like there, you can easily just get pulled out to, you know, sucked out to sea. But there's also ways to, like, if you're getting sucked out to sea without a surfboard, there's ways to, like, deal with that. It's just if you don't know how to deal with that, then you're going to panic and drown. But there yeah. is a way. So, I mean, I'll tell you, if it ever happens oh to you to get dragged out to sea, basically, like, whatever's dragging you out to sea is only going to be, like, the width of a road at maximum. 
So instead of fighting and trying to swim back to shore, you just go swim left or right, and then you'll get off of what is essentially like a conveyor belt of water that's going out to sea. And then you just, then you can just like swim back to the beach, basically. No problem. So you just got to make sure don't fight it and go the opposite direction. Try to go Go horizontal or or whatever. If you can go left or right 20 feet, you'll then find that like, oh, okay, now I can swim again. Hey, but yeah, look but at people that. Panic and, Worst case scenario tip from Paul Banks yeah, for you, go. LSQ listeners. <laughs> um, so, okay, I wanna I wanna talk about your earliest memories of encounters with music. I mean, what do you what stands out in your mind as the first time music really tickled your your fancy as a kid? Uh, the earliest memories are not even like it was more that I got fixated. I, I do remember kind of thinking, um, I remember thinking first, like how small are the little people in the radio making the songs that was a very small child. And then I, then my thought became, where are these people that are playing these songs right now that are coming through the radio? I remember being kind of fixated. Like I knew that they were probably full size human beings that weren't actually in the radio but that I also thought every time you were hearing a song on the radio that that was being performed somewhere. And I just, I don't know, I remember kind of like being really interested in like how, where is this coming from? Yeah. I think, yeah, I think my brain was just like kind of wired where like sound was interesting to me from a very early stage. Right. Just like, where's it coming from? Um, Then I remember like seeing a live Bruce Springsteen performance and being really bummed that it didn't sound like the recording. And I remember that was another kind of like key moment for me to distinguish between what live music is versus recorded music. Right. And then the first album I ever got was uh, Michael Jackson Thriller. Mm-hmm. And I remember I had like a little red Fisher Price tape player and I used to listen to Thriller on that. And that was, I think music was big in my house. So I just also kind of grew up with people that were into music. Yeah. Um, did your parents have stuff that they were, that they were into or verbal about vocal about being into yeah yeah Yeah. i remember like mom's favorite song when i was a kid was nights in white satin okay blues great tune uh and my pops is like a santana buff right like two copies of every vinyl release ever nice yeah we had a lot of vinyl i grew up with a lot of vinyl in my house do either of them play music or play an instrument dad's a guitarist right my dad was in a skiffle band Okay. You know that is? Yes, I do. Yeah. It's what the Beatles were before they were exactly. the Beatles, before they were the Beatles and before they were rock and roll. I remember growing up and there'd be those commercials for albums on TV where the song titles would be scrolling up the TV and then like they'd be in white and then the yellow one would be the one that's playing in the commercial. <laughs> um, and I remember they were advertising the Smokey, Smokey Robinson record a lot and Tears of a Clown would come on. And I remember as a little kid just like, fucking love that song oh yeah those like time life exactly uh, compilations yeah, yeah. So um, i remember that, i remember that was one when uh what was the band that had um vivid was their first record. oh yeah living color yeah. living color was the first album that i had to like buy you know that was like when cult of personality came out that was the first one you know thriller was a gift to me but like cult of personality was the first cd that i ever bought yeah um and I'm guessing that was probably another thing. Yeah, you. so you probably like yeah, had MTV where it was the first couple of things that you were starting to see yeah, and there on was, there. There was, uh, who was it? Um, 
I'm alive and I'm waiting, waiting. Oh yeah. What band was um, that? That's uh, Jesus. That's the, that's the that's Jesus Jones. Yeah. <laughs> which that was my first concert was Jesus Jones. Like my friend's sister worked at a record label or something and like could get us in to see shows and I knew that song, and uh, that was their that was their best song. <laughs> right. But actually, now that I'm thinking about, it, I remember. Okay, when I was in grade school, Guns N' Roses came out. Right. So I remember hearing about this record appetite for destruction because like some my fifth grade buddy's older sister was into it right you know what i mean we were a little too young for that but i remember hearing like there's this thing it's very mysterious it sounds kind of dangerous and then obviously like sweet child of mine came out and uh i was big into that i was big into beastie boys when they did fight for your right uh that was those were when i was like quite young so like walk this way came out which eh, wasn't really my bag the, the run dmc aerosmith collab remember yeah that one? oh of course uh, you were living in, I know, in in Spain in for Spain. a portion of. Was Guns and Roses? Did Guns and Roses reach? You know, you would have been even younger than that. What was? Did, was do you Michigan. think the music you were hearing was it affected by being in Spain? I mean, did only well, certain things get big enough to get over there? I was in Michigan when Guns and Roses got on the radar, and then when I was in Spain, yeah, there was like MTV Europe. So right. from like seventh grade on, I was watching MTV Europe and kind of being exposed to. You know, every day I was watching that. There must have been so, some cool random artists that didn't make it over here that were sort of popping yeah, off. Whale, there. remember Whale? Yeah, was that that was one that was like kind of big. And I remember I was introduced to Manic Street Preachers, and I feel like they weren't as big in the states commercially, but yeah. they were like big in Europe. Not still. Uh, oh, fucking Stone Roses! Yeah, hit me hard. Yeah, that's, that's some that's some music. Do you think there was a quality that some of the things that reached you early share or shared that made them appeal to you? I mean, was there a, th a thing you were looking for in music at that age? Yeah, well, there was also things that I wasn't looking for. I remember there was a, there was a whole type of music that I think now I would just kind of qualify as being sort of saccharine and soulless, and it would actually depress me. So like certain pop music and popular music and oldies would like bum me out as a kid like so on some existential thing or like just like the frequencies like <sighs> just like you mean pop i mean some of, of it is stuff that i like more now but like the don henley like deadhead sticker on a cadillac yeah. and stuff like something about it just like i don't know i don't know there's something in kind of commercial music that bothered me and then when i saw like nick cave commercial uh, when I was a kid and then like that resonated you know I think right. it was I always resonate things with edge always resonated with me right did um, you feel like an outsider as a kid I mean you do if you kind of you know are an American kid living in or you're a British kid living in America and then you're an American kid living in Spain and then you're a, a kid that's been going to bars in Spain moving back to suburban New Jersey and like doing nothing uh, and then I moved to Mexico so, I mean, I was always, you know, not because of my artistic inclinations, I don't think. I mean, probably also, but I think I had, like, all, other larger reasons to feel out of place a lot through right. that period of my life. Right. Like, um, I remember going back to England when I was, like, six or seven, and the kids in the... We were in a caravan park visiting my grandmother in Essex, which, if you know England, it's all kind of classic. Um it's like being in a trailer, you know, near Coney Island, you know. Kind of right. Thing. So I was like literally in a trailer park with my mom and my brother visiting my grandmother. Uh, and the kids in the trailer park would like were making fun of my brother and I for our accents and calling us Yanks. 
and I was kind of like, wait a minute, like I'm English by birth, my my mother and my father are English, and I'm here visiting my British grandmother, but I'm a Yank, you know, like and being kind of bullied, I guess, back in England, like four years after moving from England. So even from that age, like there was always just some sort of cultural, I was always out of sync in some way with like the culture that I was around. And then ultimately I'd kind of assimilate and then I think become kind of a broader person as a result. So I never stayed feeling like an outsider. I just remember feeling frequently, you know. Like you had to adapt to something new again yeah. or adapt to yeah. what how people saw you in spite of how different it might be from how you felt. And yeah, and realizing people can just, yeah, kids are dicks, man. Yeah. Um, when did you start trying to play or sing or do anything, make any music with your, you know, yourself? Well, so also I forgot to say, like, as far as music that was like making a big impact. So by seventh grade, I had a fake hip hop duo with my, with my buddy who was an eighth grader and we were listening to like Too Short and Two Life Crew and NWA and just everything that was like really inappropriate, you know, for like a 12 year old, uh, I think. Why was it a fake duo? Well, like we had fake names, right. we had like a, a book with like illustrations of our characters, and then we made like mixtapes where he would just kind of like swear a lot. But I remember I, w I got really into editing. Uh, I would edit from like Eddie Murphy stand up and uh, Andrew Dice Clay stand up and then like hip hop songs of the day. And I had, you know, tape players had like two tape cassette you know, when there's like a pause and record, and I would make these like, <laughs> yeah. I guess, I don't know if like mixtapes, but like edits, you know, that would have right. sort of our music on there and then intercut with like a series of swear words from an NWA song and then right. like the scratches from another song. And so I remember that was actually like me kind of the first time that I was manipulating music as well as sort of a birth of my interest in hip hop. So that was also very specifically seventh grade in Spain. Right. I mean, you can't like, it's not that remote. You know what I mean? Like most, most, most things that were making a cultural impact in the States, we're going to make it. To, of course. To yeah. Spain. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm guessing that it was, you know, and from what I know about your, your story, the idea that you would actually do music as your thing. That okay. You would, yeah. That came that, up ninth that, grade. Oh, it did. Okay. Yeah. 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 When, when our 10th grade was when I decided that, that would be what I wanted to do with my life. And that okay. was when Nirvana broke. Right. Yeah. So I was already playing guitar and I was already started playing guitar in eighth or ninth grade. And then by 10th grade, I was like, OK, this is what I want to do with my whole life, which was directly a result of seeing Nirvana. And did you. Well, what do you think it was about Nirvana that brought that out in you or about Cobain specifically? Well, I mean, I think it's kind of timing. I think that he was. You know, it's going to be the Jim Morrisons and the Kurt Cobains that really inspire generations of musicians. You know what I mean? Like, it's those figures that just like, you know, they're they're celebrated by world culture, you know, for the foreseeable future because they just really had that much of an impact. So I think as like a 15-year-old, I think Kurt Cobain had an impact on everybody. And for me, I think, again, it comes back to the edge. It comes back to something in his authenticity and... um and the fashion I really liked, or the anti-fashion of it. Right. And not everyone would look at that, like myself, having also just, like, you know, become pretty quickly obsessed with Nirvana. Um, you know, would never... I, I wouldn't have thought, like, oh, I want to I want to do that. You know what I mean? It's not it's, it's not everyone who would, who would look at that and, and have that be their reaction. And it's funny, yeah, because, like, I was into Jane's Addiction a lot, and um, 
but I was just into them a lot. They weren't the thing that made me say that's what I'm going to do. And and also like Pearl Jam was around at that time and they weren't they weren't the thing that made me say that's what I want to do. So it really was something about Kurt that yeah, very yeah. specifically spoke to me. And did it I mean obviously when you're a kid you have no idea what the fuck how how does one get from learning to play guitar to, to being Kurt Cobain or whatever, but um was it really did it become your mission i mean did you make a bat did was there anything else you w- wanted to do or was that the beginning of it being just sort of a thing you were determined to yeah. figure out from age 15 that was it that was the the only goal wow yeah and how did your parents react react to that i mean they i got pretty good grades in high school and then we i think to I wasn't altogether that inclined to go to college because, you know, I wanted to just be, you know, in a rock band. But I did sort of like, I guess, to like humor them. And I suppose on some level, I knew it was in my best interest to like get a degree. But I also remember like I went and looked at all the different universities I was applying to. And when I saw NYU, I was like, you know, I just saw the campus and I kind of knew like I I just got to come here. Like the energy around like Washington Square Park relative to every other university that I'd been to and seen. I was like, this is where I have to be. Uh, and then I was getting into Leonard Cohen and he was talking, you know, like lots of Manhattan imagery as well. Right. And had you started going to show when, once you were back in Jersey and stuff like that? Did you start going to shows in New Jersey? I was there for one year of high school, my okay. junior year. And I was that was when I was definitely like an outcast, like major not fitting in. Um, but I had one friend, uh, Alana DiGiacomo. Maybe some music file that listens to your podcast will actually know her because I'm sure she went somewhere in music. She had a zine and she was in all these hardcore bands and she was really cool. She was like a good friend of mine in that that year and she took me to watch like hardcore bands playing in garages. Oh yeah, you know? I don't know where and you know and obviously Jersey is big, but even just growing up going to shows in New York and Long Island and stuff, frequently you would find yourself at a house show or an all ages show or some VFW situation in Jersey and just some uh, some of the best shows I ever saw you know in those situations like going to see Ted Leo at a VFW hall or whatever that that kind of shit um and so this is all overlapping with you starting to write songs because I know that you took guitar lessons but didn't really weren't really interested in learning other other artists songs as fully as you were interested in writing your own one semester when I lived in Madrid I took a um classical guitar class and I think I went to see the guy like four times and then I bailed so that was like finger picking on nylon strings but that was the only the only training I ever had and then you know that didn't really stick Right. I mean, I think it made me really interested in finger picking, which I've done like on solo stuff. I like do a lot of finger picking. Right. But that was a very short, you know, short window. I learned how to play Granada. And then, yeah, but then I was just writing my own stuff on, on acoustic guitar. What were you hoping it would sound like at that point? I think the the influences I had that kind of seemed like I never heard Nirvana and said, like, I can do that. You know, there was something in his like scream that just seemed so signature and, right. and him. But there was something about Neil Young and Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen that felt more like close to where I could go right. somehow. You've had this voice since you were a little kid. I'm just picturing little kid Paul just with the same voice that you have now. And you're like, I don't know. I think I'm going to have to sing something different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting, like, especially for men, how the aging of your voice as you're like in music for longer becomes like a thing that I imagine not that women's voices don't also get deeper with age, but the idea that some of our favorite 
uh, older male artists, they're, you're like, your voice is only going to get even cooler. I, I, it was explained to me that like physiologically men have like two times in their life where their vocal cords, like the, the fibers like double or something. And like the second time is like when you're 50. Wow. So there's like an actual physiological reason why like the voice might get richer. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think Bono told me that actually. And then I think I confirmed it with my voice coach. But um Which reminds me that if you if you're allowed to smoke in here and you want to, feel free, don't know. Thank you. Account. Yeah, but I, I feel like yeah, I get all this shit on social media these days about like you gotta quit smoking and like I also I also need to get Botox and sleep more, according to <laughs> the social meds. Oh, Swear God. to God I gotta get off there. I can still understand Instagram because I love taking pictures and like, you know, and it's just that there's a place to put that still makes sense to me. But when some (laughs) fuck spoiled the fucking Avengers on some on Instagram and it's like such a dick move. Oh, my God. But it wasn't like a really overt spoiler. It was like because I feel like there's enough people censoring other people from doing that. But it was like a A kernel of info, a kernel. Yeah. And it was like a clever thing where it was like a a, a Google search window along yeah. the lines of does this happen kind of thing. And it was like, okay, well, now I'm fucking thinking about that specific thing happening. And it like, uh. You can't unsee it. Yeah. And I'm like, you can't really be more excited than I am about watching the new Avengers film. Yeah. I'm fully a fan of that. You need to go see it as soon as possible. I'm going to see it tomorrow night in Denver. Yeah. Right. Because you're, and then, and then you have Red Rocks happening, exactly. right? When did you start to feel comfortable on stage as a as a performer? Um, and, how, and how did you get there? I've never really looked at myself as a performer in the in the way of like, you know, really. Yeah, I guess like in the performance sense, I was never, and I I'm not a good public speaker. Like the idea of doing a toast gives me a like, you know, I get really uncomfortable. Um, but singing songs or lyrics that I wrote was never uncomfortable and it never, uh, I never had stage fright from that. But yeah, if, if we were at dinner and I had to like say something that would give me major stage fright. So there was just, but so it was never like, I never like looked at performing as like, okay, I gotta be like, you know, demonstrative and like dance and like fucking do the splits and stuff. Like it was like, that just really isn't me. I, I really enjoy playing guitar and singing and that's the size of it. And I feel very relaxed doing that and always have and did did i mean did writing did songwriting feel similarly i mean when you started to get into it did it feel like something you didn't have to second guess too much no songwriting is hard songwriting i find hard when i'm working in a band like with interpol and daniel's presenting songs on guitar i find writing top line melodies and and lyrics very easy Uh, that's that's super sort of intuitive and responsive but actually constructing songs like i only have two solo records because like it takes me a long fucking time to like structure an entire song feel like i could really improve on that as a matter of fact um so that part of it has always kind of felt like i think about that is it ben franklin who said one percent inspiration and 99 percent perspiration oh, yeah and i feel like that's what i feel like i could hustle a little bit more um but right. because i fell in with a group where like well this guy's writing all these amazing songs and my job is the vocals and that part i, I didn't have to like just the activity of doing it, I think I got better at it over time. But it right. was never this challenge where I had to like I got to unlock the mystery of like how to do this. It just felt like I don't know the song's doing this, so I'm going to do that. Right, right. But you you had 
you had been writing your own songs at, prior, at, yeah. prior for for years before you you sort of plugged in uh, to having collaborators. I mean, I guess I just wonder if when you do go to that mode where you're like, I'm gonna sit um, and see what I come up with, wh- whether there's a sort of a, a feeling, there's a similar feeling even now when you're doing it as there was when you were a kid, you know, or sort of if if when it's happening and it's all going right, if if you can recognize that feeling in some visceral way. For sure. Yeah. 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 When you get the stoke. But it's it's kind of interesting because in recent years for me, I've sort of switched over to doing a lot of music in my laptop, which means that I realized that it doesn't have to be for the majority of my life, it was like interacting with a guitar that would get me to that place where like what I'm doing is very emotionally resonant and I'm really enjoying composing this and playing this on a guitar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When I started doing like the solo records and I kind of like have to map out all the other instrumentation that opened up this new world where like it's not instrument specific, it's just sound and like right. manipulating sound. And so now I get that same stoke with keyboards or with you know just like strings and beats and all kinds of things so my relationship to a guitar as a songwriter has actually changed a bit in recent years because it isn't the only go-to for me to express whatever needs to come out of me now i have all these outlets and so that's what i maybe i mean when i say like i could still like work a little bit more on that is kind of coming back to the guitar as being the basis of my songwriting to sort of get back to that feeling of when I was 15. Right. And like the muscle memory things that would come back, I'm sure. But it's interesting because you've mentioned a couple of times the idea of certain frequencies that you think, you know, work for you or don't work for you or reach you or don't. And I would imagine that working on a laptop allows you to be more open to like, oh, it's not just about the most familiar instrument possible, but uh, sound is more intangible construct than that or something well it with a guitar for instance like i always sort of saw the guitar neck as like in like geometric shapes because i never learned like what the chords are so it became kind of i probably remember my finger positioning by kind of visualizing like a geometric shape right looking at the fretboard a certain way and then your hands can only do so many positions and i never got into alternative tunings so basically the guitar it becomes very familiar and you and you get like um, ways into it that maybe are at the expense of other ways into it. And so when you switch instruments and it's like I have no history with this instrument. I don't know any geometries to it that are like now muscle memory. Yeah. There's no patterns that I default to if I'm like at a hang up. Now it's like, you know, for me to like write a chord on my laptop, it's like the N key, the G key. Uh, you know what I mean? It's like there's no, there's nothing familiar to that. It's just like really, I'm just reacting to the sound that's coming out of it from what I'm doing. And but so it must the, also reconnect. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, to that cut and paste stuff. You know, going back to, you know, the sort of the hip hop project and cutting and pasting yeah. audio and being able to visualize things that way is obviously something that you like the mechanics of and the abstraction of as well. Mm-hmm. Clearly, you're about to do some more shows with Interpol, and this album campaign is is still in full bloom. But it, it's it's nearing the point, I imagine, when you're thinking about what might be next, what might be on the 2020 tip. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, what are you? What are are there things you're looking forward to fucking around with? When I mean, score I, winds I, I I done been working on my 2020 thing since like 2017. So there's always yeah, there's always something going on, and yeah. there, there will be a release next year of my next project which is totally different than anything else i've ever done and tight yeah yeah yeah. i'm very excited about it 
when you refer to the concept of the stoke of the feeling when a, a song's coming together, is that relatable to the uh, the surfing feeling when you're surfing right? It's a surf term that I think is really great. You know, does it? But does do it to about. you, Paul Banks, feel similar physically? The your your stokedness about surfing nowadays and the and the stokedness. You know, that, that's interesting. Mm, it's a little different with with music. The stoke. I used to say it was like archaeology, where you were, you know, you're just on some barren landscape, and then you trip over like a hip bone or something or a rib. And then it's just this process of like, cool, set up some fucking ropes, get the tools out. Like, this is where it is. And now it's just this long process of unearthing whatever is under the surface here. But now I know it's here. And that's the stoke in, in songwriting and composition is like, once you bump into it, just kind of like, cool. Like now that it's not just this empty landscape anymore, I've like zeroed in. And now there's another facet of that process, which kind of is, generates its own energy which is like, oh my God, now I'm seeing more and more of this thing that's buried as you go unearthing it. Whereas with physical activities, the stoke is like more visceral and there's no thought, like especially if you're kind of like with surfing, it's sort of, you have to go automatic. You can't really be thinking about the choices you're making while you're like riding. I mean, you you do, like I'm going to turn now, I'm going to try this, but there's other times, I guess like if it's more like critical where it's everything's happening too fast and you're literally unable to be deciding what you're going to do. You're just doing it. And I think there's that the stoke of surfing is like in this physical adrenaline and kind of, I think also something ancient involving using all of our physicality. I think surfing really opens all that up. Um, yeah. It's interesting as someone who can neither surf nor write songs to think about because about the differences and similarities, because yeah, in some ways, they're, they sound vastly different, but in other ways, it's like trusting your own instincts in two different ways to follow the turns without mm. needing to overthink it too much, that it's just like the path is there for you or something. Well, Paul, thank you so much for making some time for me here at uh, Nightbird Studios in LA. My pleasure. Thank you. Exciting at the end there to hear Paul talk about some new music he's working on separate from Interpol and which he plans to release in 2020, and I'll keep you posted as I get any updates on that. Up next in episode 31 of LSQ, a chat with Colin Hanks, who a lot of folks know best for his roles in film and on TV, most recently in the series Life in Pieces. But I know Colin as a fellow music nerd. We first met through friends several years ago at South by Southwest. And since then, he's made a couple of really great music documentaries, one about the history of Tower Records, which you'll hear him talk a little bit about coming up, as well as really a heartbreaking documentary with Eagles of Death Metal following their experience during the terrorist attack in Paris from 2015, both of which are things you should watch. Um, And yeah, it was just interesting after hanging with Colin a lot over the years to get to talk to him about the moments that formed his music obsession. So let's listen to that right now. I remember very vividly like being in the car with my mom and hearing her play like David Bowie and Dire Straits, Paul Simon, Graceland, which I think is like for a certain people of a certain age, like that's just like 
that's like a seminal album for your parents as it is for you as well, for some strange reason. But really like the Bowie stuff in particular, I have a very distinct memory of going like, oh, I really like this. Whereas everything sort of prior to that, regardless of whether it was actually good or not, I sort of outrightly rejected because it came from the sort of parental choice, you know, and that's stupid because it's like the Beatles are fantastic. Oh, but yeah. I was just like, no, anything but the Beatles, mom, you know, so um, that was, yeah, I think Bowie was probably the, the biggest one. That was the first one where I was like, oh, there's something in this that I really like that I think is really cool. And then that sort of got me, you know, trying to find stuff that I liked as opposed to just what was playing. So what where did that? you, where would you go to do that? Was there a, did you, did you have a record shop that you. Yeah. Tower records. Yeah. yeah I mean, tower was one. We had a few in Sacramento. Um, there was another one that was a, a, a an independent uh, shop called the beat mm-hmm. um, that moved around Sacramento quite a bit. Um, and I saw it at all of its various locations, but that was a big one because I could, uh, bike there. So that was the proverbial candy shop for me. That was where I would just go and, you know, you got maybe 15 bucks. Yeah. So what tape are you going to buy? Yeah. You know, um, or you got 20 bucks and so maybe you could get two tapes, you know, um, that kind of stuff. And maybe you're saving up for that special CD that's, you know, behind the counter or something like that. Um, Do you remember what the first thing, you know, piece of music you bought with your own money was or what the first couple of things might have been? Yeah, you know, I, I for some strange reason, I, I have a very vivid memory of, of the first CD that I bought, which was a, which was Squeeze. Babylon and on nice which was, is such a random one because I think it's just because I like that hourglass song that was it was like the single off it yeah. so I think I was just like oh I'll buy that because we were actually at like a really shitty <laughs> we were at a shitty record store yeah um and so about that but I but you know I also remember buying like Licensed Ill by the BC Boys and Raising Hell by Run DMC like you know, that sort of late 80s sort of hip hop sort of right. beginnings. Um, I remember buying those cassettes. Um, and guided mostly by the things that you heard something of on the radio and wanted to hear more. Pretty much. I mean, yeah. as the oldest child, I didn't really have anyone that was like slipping me the stuff that they really liked. And I didn't have any like distant cousin that, you know, right, sort of like, right. I mean, sometimes it's the cover like art thing, right? Sometimes you're oh, just absolutely. like, this looks cool. Well, I guess For like sure. maybe as you get older and when you're a little kid, it's just sort of like more of the people who make that one song that I like. Absolutely. But you know, there was the one thing that I did have was a school bus. So, you know, the older kids on the school bus, you know, that was where I first saw, you know, I was like, Iron, Iron Maiden, what is that? What That's some crazy artwork or you know, I remember being obsessed with the Def Leppard, f- like font. Yeah, one <laughs> hell logo. of a font. Yeah, one hell of a one hell of a graphic design choice. Um, you and know, so... artists don't take that much care on their fonts these days. I feel like you don't really like. There are some artists who have a logo, you know, um, but I feel like I can't picture like what does the Killers logo look like. 
I bring know back, it. Yeah, bring back logos. You kids. gotta have. You gotta have. You gotta have a font. You yeah. definitely look into some Nutriface. Don't be afraid to go extreme with the font. Yes, exactly. Because it could end up being the. You know, it could end up being the the thing that yeah, the twenty the years thing from that now, is put on every jean jacket and backpack, <laughs> and you yeah. just see forever at every horrible head shop you ever. Yeah, that's the thing your grandkids probably. are going to make money on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, really, quite honestly, like it was whatever was on the radio. Um, and did you, were, were music lessons a thing at all for you? Music lessons were, I took drum lessons for a little while. Um, but that ended up being far too much sort of homework for me. I just ended up just trying to find music kind of anywhere that I could, as long as it was fun and engaging. And if it was like a chore, then I really wasn't into it. And so and so therefore lessons went right out the window. <laughs> right, right. So what was the first stuff that really felt like you were defined, like, you know, the sort of group of artists or albums that felt like you were defining what kind of became your taste? Well, I mean, 91, there's a lot of different stuff that comes out. I think 91 is probably like the year where it all sort of starts coming together. The so, year punk broke, as it's known. Yes, as, as, as that movie so eloquently <laughs> stated. Um, and so therefore you've got, you know... Pretty much everything from Nirvana and the Chili Peppers and Pearl Jam going through up to, you know, the sort of 92 evolution of the Beastie Boys yeah. and the sort, you know, all of, all of that. And, right. and I, I always hate the best, sort the of best like, sort of all of the early alternative rocks. I hate sort of labeling it as that, but yeah. like that was a very, very distinct, powerful thing. And I think because I was a kid who watched a lot of MTV while I was growing up, I was very cognizant of the fact that there was this switch that was happening. Right. You know, I mean, I... Because you're like 13 or something at that I'm point. 13, 14, but I've been watching MTV, so I've been seeing, you know, Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses and, you know, Warrant and all of those bands, as well as every other you know, musical genre that was playing at that time. And so it was all just sort of this stuff. I was very cognizant that here is what is popular right now um, that is all right, it's cool, but it's not really anything that I'm supremely excited about. And then all of a sudden, this different kind of thing is available. Right. And, you know, because I didn't have an older sibling or an older cousin, and I was just sort of relying on, you know, the, the older kids on the bus to then have something that was uniquely like it felt like mine. Yeah. You know, it felt very personal. Never mind the sort of like angst and all that stuff that you're feeling, but it was just very different. It wasn't what I thought, you know, the idea of like, Flea as a bass player was so opposite of what I, you know, thought bass players were at that time. I was like, oh, well, that's different. That's something new. That's something different. Um, That's actually like approachable and doesn't seem like this, you know, like unachievable kind of thing. So that would all of that ended up becoming very, very uh, like an important like block for me. It's interesting because I was I interviewed Stephen Malcolmus, which I like geeked out hard. I kept oh, wow. my geek on lock for yeah, yeah. it, you know, to an hard to do. Sometimes. Steve, did I keep my geek on lock? I don't know. <laughs> I tried, but he was talking about as a kid being into things like the B fifty twos and Devo, and similarly, kind of thinking 
you know, that it was more obscure than it was. Or like tell you know, having this feeling that you'd found something or that you yeah. liked something really weird, even though Obviously, we know those things, you know, at that time for him, they were on the radio. Obviously, that's how he heard them. And obviously, I felt the same way even encountering Nirvana on MTV. Yeah. But still, and it was huge. It was on its way to being huge already, but it still felt like uh, there was something you couldn't put your finger on about what made it like the kind of weird that you liked, if you're me or in this case you. And there's something, I think, you know, comforting in finding like, oh, there's there's this weird accessible thing that yeah. feels like mine. And and I think there was a there, there another component to it was so I I grew up in Sacramento and so we would have bands come through Sacramento and play like the Arena, Arco Arena. But um it wasn't like you know all of the really big bands maybe they'd stop in Sacramento but chances are they'd just go to San Francisco. And so there were a set of like clubs um, some of them were all ages, some of them weren't, but there was a set of clubs, uh, in town, the cattle club in particular, which is an important one for Sacramento. And when those bands were breaking, like part of the conversation was, oh, they played the cattle club like a year ago. Like, oh, well, if they played the cattle club, a place that I go to and I love and, you know, God, I hope one day I'll get to play there. That adds a bit of that sort of bond where you go like oh you know what was just something that was coming through town is now super popular that's like a big like allure almost i want to say and you know and then from that you sort of take that and then you go like okay well what are the bands that they really like and then you sort of work backwards like there's a lot of like detective work oh yeah um but that ended up being really important because you know um Bloodshare Sex Magic is dedicated to Mike Watt well who's Mike Watt oh oh okay Mike Watt okay the the Minutemen. Well, who's a Minuteman? Who's D Boone? Like all of these different things. Who are the meters? You know, all of these different components that sort of end up sort of forming your sort of m- musical knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, and, and a lot of that kind of ends up going backwards sometimes, which is that's when it gets a little bit more fun for me, at least. Um, because then it's not necessarily so much about what is the most popular thing, but it's more about like, hey, well, have you heard this? Do you, do you like this? That's actually one of the reasons why I sort of have been enjoying the last few years just in terms of like the variety of how you're able to now discover music. The amount of bands I remember reading about but never being able to find mm-hmm. or being able to like spend the money to, 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 to dig into, I can now like discover. Like I remember texting you like, hey, LSQ, like shellac like where do i start like what do i do here and you're like start at this record and go for, yeah you know, and go forward and um and that kind of component is that to me is really fun and i think part of that is because i think i came up or we came up in sort of that last generation of like well this is what is very very earnestly being sold to you yeah um, and we're going to find this stuff that we think that you like, and we're going to co-op that and sell that to you as well. And now it's just sort of like, oh, you like what you like. It doesn't really matter how you find it or where you yeah. listen to it. Yeah. Although I guess, no, I have the dystopian fear that we're at the, that we were at the very, very beginning of that. And now we're at the crest, getting to the crest of the algorithmic wave where it's Ugh. like you only are fed the things that, uh, that the people who programmed the robot 
think yeah. they'll eventually like. I mean, I think nowadays, as much as it's awesome to be able to say, "Oh, what does that? What does that sound like?" I'll listen to it. The the um, urge to not listen completely or not listen till the end and just to decide. Whereas, you know, when we were kids, if you accidentally bought a record you didn't like, you know, you were stuck with it for potentially forever, it seemed like. And you would or maybe at least you'd carry it around forever. You know, and then you but you might find the thing you like just because it was what you had and you put it on and you yeah. gave it you were patient with it as opposed to giving it eight seconds before you skip to the next thing or give it a thumbs down. Yeah. And and you know, then you're never gonna have that as your sometimes I listen I hear songs come on on random that I'm like, wow, I really loved this album so deeply when it came out, but part of it was because it was one of very few that I had. Yeah. <laughs> you know it was I mean? just, yeah, it was and the it was one. Like, Does this really hold up to time or was it just one of the eight records I had? Yeah. What do you think are the main things that you kind of learned about the, about the music business from making the tower records documentary? What were your, what remain your sort of takeaways from that? Like, um, years later? I think more than anything, this idea of like, you do not need to have a huge plan for world domination at all. You just need to have an idea or an inkling or an instinct or a gut reaction, like whatever you want to call it. But this idea of like, well, let's give this a shot. Like, let's try it. And that goes for everything. I mean, that goes for you know, oh, well, I don't know if I like this person, but let's give it a shot, you mm. know, or I don't know if I like this idea, but let's give it a shot. I don't know if I like this job, but let's give it a shot. I don't know if I like this band, but let's give it a shot. You know, that idea of being more willing to say yes and try and figure figure the rest of the shit out later, mm -hmm. that I think was really engaging for me the, because I was sort of went in thinking that it had been this big master plan from the get-go. Mm. And I ended up finding out that from the very inception of Tower all the way to the end, it was just this, let's figure it out. We don't know what we're doing. We, In fact, we have no idea what we're doing, but let's try and find a way to to to, to make it work. Mm. And, and that, I think, was incredibly liberating and sort of led to sort of the the sort of next kind of big sort of like aha moment for me of just you know, trying, try, uh, trying stuff, being more open to trying things. And um, the idea of, you know, being uncomfortable is not necessarily a bad thing. And in fact, if you're an artist, you you need to lean into that a little bit more and you need to take risks. Do you know what I mean? The tower, I think more than anything was, was really an exercise in, in sort of trying to understand an entire new business mm -hmm. and realizing that there is a huge, um, just because you're not the one, you know, <laughs> just because you're not the one writing the songs or performing the songs doesn't mean that there's hundreds of other people that don't feel the exact same way you do about, you know, music, but, you know, they can't be the ones that are on that stage. And so it's, you know, you have to uh, lean on the people that sort of, you know, you, you can't do it all yourself. Yeah. And I think like with Tower, like everyone that worked at Tower, um, but then also all the people that worked for the labels that had relationships with people at Tower, like it was like truly a community of people that were trying to you know, all go somewhere collectively together. 
and as you look at sort of the array of things that you're working on in the in the coming months and and beyond are there other like music related projects that you'd at some point like to dig into or are beginning to think about yeah i mean the 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 doc thing will always sort of be in some shape or form certain that will always be something that i'll go back to yeah um uh but i've really trying what i'm trying to do now is take that corner of the sandbox of being able to create my own stuff and i'm trying to meld it with the wearing makeup and pretending to be other people and other people's things and try and bring those things together and like there's a very specific reason i think that the first thing that i actually made was music related because that's how important it is to me yeah. in some ways music is more important to me than movies or tv in that regard so you know the the first or one of the first things that um that i'm trying to to get going off the ground is directly related to to music and um i don't want to talk about it too yeah. much now because then you'll keep, me, you'll keep me posted i'll keep you posted yeah i mean if, there's a million different things that need to happen in order for it to 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 work but um it's been really fun working on it and and it's i have no idea if it'll ever see the light of day mm-hmm. But fuck it, I have to, I like, I have to, <laughs> I've got to give it a shot. Oh my gosh, thank you, Colin, so much for taking the time to do this thank with you, me. Thank you, Danielle, this was a blast. And I will, as well, keep you posted as Colin keeps me posted on that project he is cryptically describing. And that brings us to the end of this episode of LSQ. I'm excited to put out episodes a bit more frequently in the remainder of this year because I guess it's a blessing and a curse that I recorded a lot of interviews at once. And now I want to get through them and and not keep them waiting in the wings for too long. So in another couple of weeks, it'll be an episode with my friend Adam Green, who is on the cusp of releasing his first new album in a long minute. That episode will also feature a conversation with Royal Trucks' Jennifer Harima as they get ready for an EP coming out early next month as well. And then down the line, episodes with Stephen Malkmus, Laura Jane Grace, and Cheryless Caroline Polachek, among others. If you haven't already subscribed, consider doing that. And you can reach me with questions and feedback on Twitter at JennyLSQ. Thanks so much for listening. 